Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh, in-depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now here's the show. I really would like this to sing with you. This basically means that our cities, our roads, our monuments, our farms, in practice all human activities, never had to cope with the climate this world. It's official. 2023 was the hottest year on record, and by a lot. It's Tuesday, January 9th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, we look at the dangerous, sometimes deadly job of being a journalist inside Gaza. And the continuing fallout for Boeing of that 737 MAX 9 jet that lost a hunk of its wall in midair. Unlike in previous incidents with 737 MAX models, no one died. But it certainly raises questions about how far the company has come since 737 disasters in 2018 and 2019. The FAA really came to treat Boeing as as its customer rather than the flying public as, as the people it was serving. We'll take a closer look in just a few minutes. But first, how about that weather we're having, huh? Snowstorms in the Midwest are shutting down major highways. Though here in Chicago, we're basically just getting rain. And those storms are moving east, bringing heavy wind and rain with them. In western Washington state, there's a rare blizzard warning, something they haven't seen in a decade. Wild weather is nothing new, and as the climate warms, it's going to continue messing with a lot of weather systems that we thought we understood. That's one reason we took note today of news from Europe's Copernicus Climate Change Service, that Earth's global average temperature was the highest it's ever been in 2023. Carlo Bontempo is the director at the Copernicus Center. He announced the finding earlier today, and then he joined us to talk more about it. Here's his conversation with Deepa Fernandez. You know, it may feel strange, Carlo, to think about this record heat while blizzards are threatening parts of the United States. But I'd love you to tell us your takeaway from this new report you've just published. Well, yes, indeed, it's, uh, it's remarkable that we talk about global mean temperature when uh, some countries, both in Europe and in the US, are experiencing really cold, uh, cold weather. But this is the difference between climate and weather. The weather, uh, in a sense, uh, keep uh, fluctuating and we see these anomalies happening. But we have to zoom out and see the bigger picture. And 2023 has been truly exceptional. So we started with uh, June uh, noticing some days above the uh, important thresholds, uh, if not else, for the reference to the Paris Agreement of the 1.5 Celsius above pre-industrial. Uh, and this was exceeded for a handful of days at the beginning of 
Jun. Jun, Jun was then um, became the warmest June on record. And since then, every single month, so July, August, uh, September, and so on, uh, was at their time uh, the warmest on record. This is really unprecedented. Uh, the year closed at 1.48 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial period that we typically um, call, refer to as uh, the period between uh, 1850 and 1900. You know, and, and th- those numbers, you know, they might not mean much to people and, and to some they might even seem small, right? Like w- just over one degree Celsius increase. But the science is clear that greenhouse gas emissions have contributed to a warming planet. That shouldn't surprise us. But I want to ask you what is surprising to you in terms of what the data shows you about possible trends moving forward? Yeah, well, in a sense, there are uh, the, the two things. Uh, in many respects, 2023 was surprising. So many of the things we have seen in 2023 surprised climate scientists. If, if you look at the uh, what happened in July, if you look at the uh, heat waves in the in the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean experienced a very significant heat waves at the beginning of, uh, well, at the end of June. And this was significant both in terms of absolute anomalies where areas reached few degrees of anomalies and extend. It went from the Irish Sea all the way down to Morocco and uh, and even farther south. So a significant fraction of the eastern North Atlantic was much warmer than usual at the beginning of the summer. If we look at the anomaly, the jump in the temperature in July or even more so in September, the jump in temperature was extremely remarkable, uh, almost a, a degree Celsius mm. above. Um, and, and this took all the loss of sea ice in, in the uh, sea around Antarctica. This took many scientists by surprise. Nevertheless, if you look at the projections that climate scientists made one or two decades ago, let's say at the beginning of the century, those projections provided useful guidance for the kind of climate we are experiencing these days. And while mm. one degree or 1.5 degrees may seem small to, to many of us because you know there are larger differences in a day or between summer and winter than the 1.5 degrees, when you look at the global climate, these are quite significant. They are comparable in magnitude to the differences between an uh, uh, ice uh, period and a glacial period and an interglacial mm. period. So, uh, and and, and it is exactly, fraction. it's exactly what what we what scientists have been warning about. You know, again, it might seem like okay, well, a heat wave in the ocean. How does that impact me? I'm thinking about the Metro Phoenix area, which is one of the hottest places in the United States. Officials there, Carlo, have confirmed 579 heat heat related deaths last year. They're still counting, um, but that number has already shattered the previous year's record. I'm wondering what record heat actually means for people around the world. Are we seeing the effects in other cities across the globe? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And actually, this was one of the uh, possibly important elements that came out at the last uh, COP28 uh, that just uh, took took place just before Christmas. Um, The fact that when we discuss about climate change, we shouldn't just talk about the the temperature per se or the moral uh, question that uh, the rising temperature poses. But we also need to, or should, frame the climate change in terms of health, and in particular, health in cities. So if you look at the heat wave that affects Europe a few months ago. Um, There is a paper that came out uh, last summer uh, that suggested 
that there were as many as 60,000 extra deaths in Europe due to the heat wave that affected the region. And we do know, because that's what uh, the IPCC confirmed in their, their sixth assessment report, that um, uh, heat wave would become more frequent, that would become more intense and, and, uh, and will last for longer. So if we put this together with the finding uh, of 2023, where we are so close to the 1.5 degrees, this clearly uh, suggests that uh, months and years to come will pose an even uh, stronger or more significant uh, risk to many of us, especially those living in cities, especially those living in cities in, in the wet tropics, yeah. uh, especially those living in the global cells that may have, may and, not have the uh, capacity to adapt and react to, to these extremes. We have to leave it there. Carlo Buentempo is director of the Copernicus Climate Change Service. Carlo, thank you. Thank you so much. Coming up next, workers are finding more loose bolts on other 737 MAX 9 jets after a part of the fuselage flew off an Alaska Airlines flight in midair last week. So just how big is the problem? And where does Boeing go from here? When we return, Scott Tong asks the guy who wrote the book on the 737 MAX. That's after the break. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. Boeing is again facing a crisis. After a big piece of a 737 MAX 9 jet blew off at 16,000 feet, it happened Friday on an Alaska Airlines flight. Alaska now says it has found loose hardware on other 737 MAX 9s. United Airlines says it found loose bolts on door latches of its Boeing 737 MAX 9s. The FAA has removed many planes from service requiring inspections before they return. As for Boeing, well, it had been trying to restore its image after two fatal crashes in 2018 and 2019. Peter Robison is following all this. He's senior reporter on the investigations team at Bloomberg News. His book is Flying Blind, the 737 MAX tragedy and the fall of Boeing. Peter, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Your book explores the reasons behind two fatal crashes of Boeing 737 MAX 8 planes back in 2018 and 2019. You wrote about problems with corporate culture, perhaps being too close to its regulator, the FAA. In this case, we're talking about a new model, the 737 MAX 9. Any reason to think this latest issue is related to the previous problems you wrote about? 
I, one, one question is, is what level of quality control inspection was being done at that area of the fuselage and, and, and certainly across the entire airplane. Boeing four years ago had been shifting from using individual inspectors to what it called statistical process control. That, that's one question I would have, you know, how, how strongly was that implemented throughout mm. its production system? Uh, and, I, and you just have to look at the individual actions and, and trace what was done, what's the work that should have been done, done in this case. And how about the oversight of the, the federal government, the FAA? What do you imagine in, investigators are looking into there? They'll be looking at that relationship that you mentioned. They'll, they'll be looking to see that there was a, a proper arm's length relationship and that enough attention was paid and, and the, the level of scrutiny that, that's needed was, was given. Yeah. Remind us what, what you found out about the relationship between Boeing and its regulators in your book. What I traced was uh, a distortion in the relationship where the regulator came to feel almost that it worked for Boeing. The, the managers worked very closely with Boeing to speed production of planes, and, and the managers uh, at the FAA r- really came to treat Boeing as, as its customer rather than the flying public as, as the people it was serving. And that all took place over over many years. And, and as I wrote in the book, it was one of the contributing factors that instead of improving Boeing's position, ma- made it more vulnerable to, to this erosion in its, its culture and, and the decline in quality. As for uh, this investigation here, what about Alaska Airlines? It reported restricting this particular plane from flying over water because of a pressurization failure light that came on a few times. The National Transportation Safety Board has said that this auto pressurization fail light lit up on three previous flights, and, and Alaska made the decision to keep flying the plane but not to fly it over water. It, it had routes to Hawaii, and it, it wasn't using the plane on those routes. The question will inevitably be asked, was, was that sufficient? Should the plane have been taken out of service and, and looked at much more closely at that point? And just coming back to Boeing briefly, uh, Peter, in your book you write that the culture of engineering collapsed at the company uh, after it merged in the 90s with McDonnell Douglas. Is that important to think about in relation to this incident? That's something I've been thinking about a lot because in some ways the, the Max's history is running parallel with the DC-10, which was a, a very ill-fated plane, one of the last wide bodies that McDonnell Douglas produced to the DC-10 crashed in the early 70s and it was because a cargo door was fitted improperly and it blew out and the plane crashed near Paris. Several years later, there was another crash of the DC-10 in Chicago because part of the engine pylon and the engine fell off and that plane crashed. Ultimately, that was blamed on an airline maintenance error, but it but it did change the DC-10's reputation and it never regained its sales success. And finally, um what does this latest incident do to Boeing's reputation? I, I guess until now, had the plane maker been restoring its image after these seven three seven Max eight crashes from a few years ago? Boeing had had been slowly getting its reputation back. When I talked to pilots at the time I wrote the book, they said, "You know, every day that a Max doesn't crash is another day the, the plane gets its reputation back." People have seen this very terrifying incident, and it's a huge setback. And as Bloomberg is reporting today, this incident came just hours before a deferred prosecution agreement with the Department of Justice over the 
max crash was due to expire. At the time of the max crashes, it, it had admitted it admitted to the Department of Justice that its employees had had deceived the FAA about how this flight control software worked, and and that mm. led the FAA to require less pilot training than it would have. And Boeing entered into a deferred prosecution agreement in which it agreed that it had committed the this crime, but that the Department of Justice would defer prosecution for a period of time until uh, while it monitored, you know, Boeing safety compliance programs. And, and that, that very agreement was due to expire over the weekend, uh, you know, after this crash, which happened on a Friday. Peter Robison is investigative reporter at Bloomberg News and author of the book Flying Blind, The 737 Max Tragedy and the Fall of Boeing. Peter, thanks once again. Yeah, thank you. Israeli military has killed dozens of journalists in Gaza. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, 79 reporters and media workers have been killed in the conflict since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. 72 of those killed were Palestinian, four Israeli and three Lebanese. After the break, Deep Up explores how journalists there are carrying on with their work despite losing colleagues and loved ones to the violence. Stick around. This message comes from NPR sponsor Total Wine and More. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine and More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. This message comes from NPR sponsor Total Wine & More. With so many great bottles to choose from at the lowest price, it's easy to find your favorite Cabernet or a new single-barrel bourbon to try with some help from one of their friendly guides. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find only at Total Wine & More. Curbside pickup and delivery available in most areas. Visit TotalWine.com to learn more. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections. Today, we're remembering journalists Hamza al-Dakhtuh and Mustafa Turaya. They were killed in an Israeli airstrike while reporting near the city of Rafah. Hamza was 27. He was the son of Al Jazeera's Gaza bureau chief Wael al dakhtuh During this war, Israeli strikes have killed several of Wael's family members, and yet he's kept reporting. Here's more from him as translated by CNN. The world should see through its own two eyes what is happening to the Palestinian people. 
not through Israel's eyes. What did Hamza do to the Israelis? What did my family do to them? What did the civilians do to them? They did nothing. Eamon Mohyadin is an anchor at MSNBC and knows Wael al-Takhtuh. He's here to talk with us about conditions for journalists and their families in Gaza. Eamon, welcome. And I want to start by asking you to tell us a bit about Hamza. Well, as you mentioned, he was uh, 27 years old. He was the oldest uh, son of Wael al-Dahduh. Um, and Hamza always wanted to be around his father, always wanted to be a journalist from a very young age. And as he got older, his father started giving him opportunities in the journalism space by bringing him with him on assignments and kind of letting him see how he worked. And Hamza got the journalist bug and started becoming a cameraman in his own right. He started uh, filming and photographing and working as a freelancer before ultimately working more and more as a uh, cameraman for Al Jazeera. Um, he, he was definitely, as Wael described him after his killing, not just a part of his father, but the whole of his father. And I think it speaks uh, volumes to just uh, how much he meant to his father and uh, to his siblings. I want to ask you, because Al Jazeera has said Hamza was targeted, and we asked the IDF about this. Israel Defence Force spokesperson returned our request for comment about the strike that killed Hamza and the other journalist, Mustafa, and they said, quote, an IDF aircraft identified and struck a terrorist who operated an aircraft that posed a threat to IDF troops. We are aware of the reports that during the strike, two other suspects who were in the same vehicle as the terrorist were also hit. When we followed up to clarify if the IDF considered the journalists suspects, and if so suspected of what, the IDF declined to comment further. We know you likely can't comment on the specifics here, but what do you make of this response, which seems to call these two journalists suspects? I've worked specifically in the environment of the Al Jazeera Bureau in Gaza. So I'm speaking specifically from my own experience and knowing how that bureau operates. The idea that somehow journalists are commingling with so-called terrorists and either doing so deliberately or unknowingly is extremely insulting to the intelligence of the journalists in Gaza and to the journalists who work day in and day out. These journalists take extreme precautions to preserve their life. So the idea that somehow they are in a vehicle with either known terrorists or somebody in the vehicle who they don't know who they that person is or what their affiliation is, I think is is very insulting and it just kind of defies the logic of the journalists that I know on the ground. Uh, they are not going to risk their lives by getting into a car with somebody who could be a potential target for the Israeli military. And I just wanted to ask you, Al Jazeera is owned by Qatar's government. There's a perception among some in this country that Al Jazeera is maybe a tool of certain Middle Eastern governments, or perhaps that it doesn't quite adhere to journalistic standards that are practiced here in America. Given your close working relationship inside that bureau, tell us about the ethos of covering conflicts, of covering the news and everyday life in Gaza, even before this war began. Based on my experience there, I found the ethos of Al Jazeera English, and that's who I specifically work for, not Al Jazeera Arabic, although we are part of one larger organization, or we were part of one larger organization. I found it to be of the highest standards. I've worked for American companies in the Middle East and here in the United States, and 
it is on par in terms of the ethos of the organization and the standards of the journalists who are reporting on the ground in these very difficult situations. I want to come back to Wael. You know, most international news agencies don't have anybody based in Gaza. I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about Wael and the way in which he covers the news and, and the fact that he's just gone right back into the fray right after his closest family members have been killed. Yeah, and I think it's a testament to who he is as an individual, but it's also a testament to the body of Palestinian journalists that are operating on the ground right now. Wael is somebody who is very sober, very steadfast, very determined, somebody who knows every inch of Gaza, somebody who has lived the experience of Gaza. He's not a journalist who has parachuted into Gaza. And he knows right now that there are no journalists from outside of Gaza who are able to report on what is happening on the ground. And because of that, he takes that responsibility very seriously, as all do Palestinian journalists right now. They know that if they are silenced or if they are not reporting, the world will not know what is happening. The Committee to Protect Journalists now reports 79 journalists and media workers are dead as a result of this conflict. We've heard criticism that Western journalists aren't speaking up enough about these incredibly dire conditions and attacks on press freedom. Do you think journalism organizations based in the U.S. and elsewhere could be doing more? I believe that the role of journalists to defend one another, to speak up for a profession, to speak up for the right of a free press is important. And every journalist around the world, every organization around the world has an obligation to speak up for our profession, speak up for journalists, wherever they may be that are facing danger, including and specifically right now for the journalists in Gaza who are alone and alienated and do not have the full support of international media organizations or watchdog organizations the way that they should. Amen. Mohildin, anchor at MSNBC. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That's our show. It comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Ashley Locke, Sam Rafelson, and Gabrielle Healy. Today's editors were Todd Munt, Peter O'Dowd, Micaela Rodriguez, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Caleb Green and Michaela Varela. Our theme music is by Mike Moschetto, Max Liebman, and me, Chris Bentley. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin, and the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you tomorrow. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR.